Revelation 17, this is the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with golden jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and uh, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is uh, an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said uh, to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, the peoples are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast um, will hate the prostitute. They will make her destitute and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we are gathered here in worship to declare your uh, supreme kingship over all the nations of the earth. Uh, you have made this world, and you have made us, and it is um, our due to give you the glory that is due your name. We thank you for your holy word that 
demands of our minds so much to study, to, to contemplate, um, to reflect, and to not only understand you and your ways, but to understand history, um, to understand kingdoms, and to understand our own hearts and our own culture. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit now to be our teacher, that you would take these ancient words and you would apply them into our lives um, so that you might form in us the mind of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are continuing uh, today our study through the book of, of Revelation. And if you're new with us, uh, one of the things that we've been saying all along in this study is that Revelation is largely about a seven-year period in the early church from the year 64 to 70 A.D. of the first century. It's the end of the first generation of Christian. And in that kind of week of years, you might say, it's seven years, like a week of years, uh, during that time, uh, the Emperor Nero began the first systematic persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. That's uh, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were, were martyred under, under Nero. Many church leaders, early church uh, leaders were martyred. And um, also during those years were the Jewish wars, where the Jews revolted against Rome, and, and, uh, uh, and it led uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so what we're describing is what's called a preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation. Next week, Revelation 18, uh, we'll read about the fall of Jerusalem. It's a key passage in kind of rightly interpreting the, the book of Res Rev Revelation. But today, we're in Revelation 17, a fascinating passage that describes the relationship between Jerusalem and Rome in the first century. And uh, I think it's very instructive for us. And, and you probably noticed that the topic of our sermon today is Christian nationalism. And uh, Christian nationalism is a pretty complicated topic. If you're familiar with Christian nationalism, you might find my treatment inadequate. So we only have 30 minutes. We'll do the best we can. But uh, what I mainly want to address is this question, is how much should we want or expect the American government and American society to be shaped and energized and ruled by Christianity? How much should we desire that? How much should that be a part of our basically political vision as Christians? And I would imagine in this room there's a diversity of answers to that question. And um, I actually don't think I'm going to say anything particularly provocative in this sermon. My goal is just to take basic biblical theology and give some application to our political engagement in America today. And I think this passage is really important because it, I think it challenges all of us, whether you're someone who's sympathetic to Christian nationalism or concerned about Christian nationalism, I hope there's some challenge for you from this passage. So in order to explain all that, I've organized today's sermon under these three headings. First, a word against Christian nationalism. Second, a word in favor of Christian nationalism. And third, a practical path forward. Okay, so three headings, a word against Christian nationalism, a word in favor of Christian nationalism, and uh, a practical path forward. And I think for some people, I imagine you might read the topic, Christian nationalism makes you anxious, and, you know, what's he going to say about that? So uh, I think it's good for us to be able to talk about it, and I'm glad we have the opportunity to address it here 
Revelation 17. So three points for us this morning, and the first is this, a word against Christian nationalism, a word against Christian nationalism. Now, before I say a couple warnings about Christian nationalism, let me just give a little explanation about what's happening in this passage. You'll notice how this passage begins, verse 1, where it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, so this passage is about a great prostitute, who is riding on a scarlet beast. And I think the main thing to know to understand this passage is that the great prostitute is Jerusalem in the first century. And the beast, the scarlet beast, is the Roman Empire in the first century. And as far as the beast goes, you know, it has seven heads and ten horns, which means if you were with us in Revelation 13, it's the same beast from Revelation, the land beast in Revelation uh, 13. And so if you want to go online and listen to that sermon, I make a case why it's pretty clear that the land beast is the Roman Empire. If you look at the kind of, uh, especially the book of Daniel. And so uh, I'm not going to go over that again, but the, prosti- the, the prostitute is Jerusalem will take a little more convincing. And the biggest reason for this is when you read through the Old Testament, and without a doubt, the prostitute, the great prostitute of the Old Testament is the people of Israel, and specifically the city of Jerusalem. And uh, and an example of this is in Ezekiel 16, which has a prophecy about Jerusalem, and it's a pretty graphic chapter. It's long, and you can go read it today if you want, but I'll just read you a couple verses. This is verse 15 from Ezekiel 16. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. And so the unfaithful one of the Old Testament is clearly uh, the people of Israel who are married to the Lord. There's the Lord's bride. And the way that they, you know, committed adultery with the Lord was they were chasing after other nations and other gods. So that's one case. Uh, Another, uh, but I think the strongest case for why the great prostitute is Jerusalem is in verse 5 there, where it says, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of uh, earth's abominations. So the prostitute is called Babylon the Great. And in fact, if you go back to Revelation chapter 11, it has already told us what the great city is. And there it had a couple other names. Uh, this is Revelation 11:8. It says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. So this city is called Sodom. It's called Egypt. Now it's being called Babylon, where their Lord was crucified. The great city is the city where Jesus was crucified, which of course is Jerusalem in the first century. So uh, what this passage is describing is the relationship between Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people that's become the whore of Babylon, and the Roman Empire, the beast with seven heads and ten hordes. And their relation, in their relationship, we learn two warnings about Christian nationalism. Okay, the first warning is that Christian nationalism is 
may lead to idolatry. Christian nationalism may lead to idolatry. And you uh, see what it says in verse 2 about the great prostitute with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. So what does it mean for a city to commit sexual immorality? Well, as you read through the Old Testament, it is always about political alignments. So, you know, I've just been reading in Isaiah and my own devotions. And Isaiah is written at a time when the Assyrians are the great world power that are threatening uh, the people of Judah. And so they go to Egypt to ask for help. And the Lord's like, why are you aligning yourself with Egypt and their false gods to come and trust in them for power to, to protect you? And so um, when God's people feel threatened, there is a temptation to not trust the Lord but to trust in alliances that are idolatrous. And in this passage, Jerusalem, the Lord's bride, has gone to bed with Rome. Which I'll tell you is very surprising because, you know, in Jesus' day, you read about there are all these zealots and uh, revolutionaries who are like trying to get the Jews to go to war with Rome. They'd been, you know, living under Roman oppression for over 200 years. And so they wanted to go to war, and you would think the Romans are their enemies. But then you come and you read the Gospels about um, who crucified Jesus. And it was a collaboration of the Jews in Jerusalem and the Romans who came together to crucify him. And there, there's that one chilling moment in the Gospels when Pontius Pilate is trying to convince them, and they're like, I don't think he's done anything wrong. You should, why don't we let him go? And then uh, Pilate asks them, do you want me to crucify your king? And they respond with these words, we have no king but Caesar. And chilling words that the Jews are saying, we have no king but Caesar. On the surface, they are religious, Bible-believing people, but in their hearts, they were Romans. It's a strange blending of Judaism and Romanism that is the great prostitute riding on the back of the beast. Now, absolutely the same thing can happen in America. And, you know, when people start calling America the light of the world or the glory of the nations— those are biblical terms that are applied to Jesus and his church, which is a nation that's in every land and every tribe. And taking that language and saying, no, it's not the church is the light of the world, or Christ is the light of the world, but America is the light of the world. Such language is idolatrous and heretical. It's a syncretism of Americanism and Christianity. And we as a church absolutely need to reject this. And of course... America is not Rome. America's a lot better than Rome by far. But it is a world power. And I'll tell you, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, I think all conservatives or liberals think there's some beastly stuff happening in America, in American government or American society. So to say that there's a beastly um, you know, pattern there uh, is not a stretch. There is no way you can read the Bible and not come away with a warning that political engagement is a huge temptation to idolatry that will turn God's people from the mission that God has given them. Now, if some of you hear that and say, well, you know, Nate doesn't like America. That's, that's not all what I'm saying. Actually, one of my heroes is uh, Abraham Kuyper, who is a Dutch theologian who became the prime minister of the Netherlands in the, uh, in the early 20th century. And he, late in his life, he wrote an essay called State and Church. And it's just a great treatment of the history of, of the relationship between the church and the state in Europe. And basically, he argues that America was the first chance that a nation has had to try out John Calvin had a vision 
of the role of society and how government and the church all work together. And America was a place where we got to try it out. And, and I think America is a deeply important step in history's movement toward the kingdom of God in the future. But it is far from actually being that kingdom. And to treat it as if America is, is a Christian heresy. And so the first thing we see in this passage is that Christian nationalism, it may lead to idolatry. And the result of that is a second warning, is that Christian nationalism may, if it does that, then end in, in shame and ruin. What's interesting in this passage, uh, it begins with the prostitute, Jerusalem, basically in bed with the Roman, uh, Roman beast. And yet the beast eventually turns on her, and you see what happens in the end of this passage, verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And what this is describing is that just a few years after Revelation is written, the Jews will revolt against the Romans, and uh, the Romans, uh, two Roman emperors, Vespasian was the first, and then his son uh, uh, Titus, laid siege to, to Jerusalem and then destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. And this is how idols always are. You trust in them because they make promises to you and they do not make good on their promises and they leave us in ruin. So when Christian nationalism becomes idolatrous, it, it will lead to ruin. Now, uh, let me just name, um, you know, maybe the main question that's in your mind as I'm saying all this is, is Nate saying that the American church's voting for Donald Trump is that the, her prostituting herself with the beast? Maybe that's your question. Maybe you didn't have that question in your mind. I think, I mean, one of the things we have to keep in mind, America is a place where you've got to vote for someone. And, like, I, I don't think uh, that should be an intramural debate of who we're going to vote for, and that should be an open discussion. And so I don't think it's necessarily prostituting yourself with a beast just because you vote for someone, or even because you make a case to Christian friends of why you think this is the best decision for someone to vote for. But on the other hand, Donald Trump does say things that make it sound like he is the Savior. And there are things that we should be appalled at that think that he is the one who can rescue us. That kind of devotion should be given to the Lord alone. And so it has the potential to become idolatrous. And some of you will say, Nate, why are you picking on conservatives? Don't liberals align themselves with the beast at least as much as conservatives? And the fact is, our church is, has more conservatives in it than it does liberals. And so we come to church. We don't come to church to hear about other people's sins. We come to church to hear about our own temptations and our own sins that we should be facing. But are there progressive Christians who have prostituted themselves with the beast? Absolutely. But this is not the only reason I wanted to focus on Christian nationalism, because though there are real temptations and sins in the Christian nationalist movement, I also think there are some points that Christian nationalists are making that are clearly biblical, at least some Christian nationalists are making that are clearly biblical. And so that leads to a second point. So we've talked about a warning about Christian nationalism that has the potential to lead to idolatry and ruin. And uh, God's people have a history of ungodly alliances with political powers. But the second thing that I want to point out from this passage is a word in favor of Christian nationalism. 
And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, for most of my ministry, I have tried to be kind of apolitical, you know, and, uh, you know, don't talk about politics. Can't we talk about other things when we come to church? And then COVID, of course, changed all that. When the government puts regulations on a church, you can't be neutral about that. you got to make a decision. You have to do something. And I think that was a good thing because I've always felt uncomfortable with saying the gospel transforms all of life and then you leave this hugely important part of human life politics kind of untouched by the gospel. And the fact is that politics is one of the biggest themes of the Bible and certainly of Revelation and this passage. And American Christians, you know, they talk a lot about having a personal relationship with Jesus, and I'm going to accept Jesus into my heart, which is good. You should have a personal relationship with Jesus. But the Bible doesn't really talk much about that. The Bible talks far more about the rise and fall of kings and empires and God's purposes in the midst of geopolitics. The Bible is highly political. And so, for example, the strongest word in favor of Christian nationalism is in uh, in this passage is verse 14, which says, They will make war on the Lamb, the Lamb is Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. Now, we often read about Jesus being the Lord of lords and King of kings, and we think that's just a way of saying, Jesus is really awesome. He's just the Lord of all lords. He's just the best. No, this is a literal. He's a political figure. And uh, most Christians throughout history have understood that the political nature of that statement more than we do. And so I want to point out two reasons why I think this verse speaks in favor of Christian nationalism. Okay, The first is that the gospel is a political announcement. The gospel is a political announcement. What it, that statement is saying that Jesus is King of King, Lord of Lords and King of Kings is that there are literal kings in the earth. They're real people. They're political rulers, and we have to live under their dictates. They make the laws that we live under, whether we like it or not. Well, it turns out they too have a king, and they need to live under the dictates of that king. And, uh, and this passage is talking about the destinies of kings and kingdoms. Let me just explain a little more uh, of this passage. So this passage about the great prostitute is Jerusalem that's riding on the beast, the Roman Empire. And then it talks about the fate of the beast. You see what it says there in verse 9? This calls for a mind of wisdom. Now that little phrase is telling us that the images in this passage are historical references and we need to figure out what they are. We need to have a mind of wisdom and solve the riddle, figure out the puzzle. And so it goes on, verse 9, this calls for a, for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was, that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Now, I bet most of you read that and be like, whoa, what, what is all that about? And I, I don't have time to go into every detail of it, but I'll just give you a sketch. The seven heads of the beast 
are the seven empires that are described in the book of, of Daniel. It's basically the 600 years that are leading up to the coming of Christ. And there was a Babylonian empire, a Persian empire. There were three Greek empires, and then a kind of a Greco-Roman transition from Greek uh, to Roman. And so the seventh is the Roman empire when it has become a violent beast under the emperor Nero. And then it mentions that this beast has ten horns who are kings. I think this is a reference to the, the ten Roman emperors. So from the first Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, to the tenth, the tenth is Vespasian, who is the emperor who's going to lay siege to Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so this is a, a describing, um, and the point is that this is all highly political. It is in the history of political leadership that we receive the announcement that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The gospel is a political announcement. And so when the early Christians died for confessing that Jesus is Lord, it wasn't so much a religious statement that they had said that they believed in Jesus. It was a political one. They were refusing to give their supreme allegiance to the emperor. And when we understand that it's a political announcement, it changes our understanding of what's happening here, what we're doing as a people. Jesus is an emperor who is building a civilization in the earth. And when you get baptized, you are becoming a citizen of Jesus' empire. And so when we say Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, we are saying the gospel has profound implications on the political realm. And that leads to a second word in favor of, of Christian nationalism. So first, the gospel is a political announcement. The second thing is that the gospel is a political victory. It's not only that Jesus the Lamb is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but it says in verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. This is a political victory. And just to be clear, it's not the political victory of a, an American political party or the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It's the victory of Christ as the Supreme Emperor, but it's not in heaven. It's in the earth. And uh, that vision of God's lordship of all the nations is repeated many times throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm just going to read to you a few verses. Uh, okay, here's one, Psalm 47, verses 8 and 9. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This is all the princes and rulers are being gathered into God's people. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says, Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. These are all the rulers and all the authorities are coming under subjection to Christ, who is the Lord of lords and King of kings. But probably the best description comes in the end of Revelation. Revelation is giving us a vision of the future. Where are we moving towards? And the vision of the future informs how we live now. And this is what Revelation 21 says. By its light will the nations... This is the city of God. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is a political prayer. That the kingdoms of this world would become more and more to resemble the kingdom of God. So if Christian nationalists are just saying that our desire should be to pray and work to make our nation, its people, its laws, its culture obedient to Christ, I don't see how a Christian could disagree with that. And if we say, well, I don't want the government influenced by the gospel, you should know that Christians throughout history and Christians around the world would say to you, what Bible are you reading? How did you get that from the scriptures and and the descriptions of who Christ is? That is not the picture that the Bible is giving us. Now, some of you will ask, okay, so all the kings bow their knees to Jesus. Does that mean that everyone in society is supposed to be forced to become Christian? Is that a political vision that Christians have, that people would be forced to become Christian? Well, I wish I had more time with that, but historically, the answer might surprise you. Uh, probably the two most powerful Christian emperors in history were, were Constantine and, and Charlemagne. Constantine was a Roman emperor in uh, the 4th century, and Charlemagne was Holy Roman Emperor in the 9th century, who's basically the father of Europe. And both Constantine and Charlemagne had theologians who were advisors to them as they were thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian emperor. And uh, uh, there were Lactantius for Constantine and Alcuin for, for Charlemagne. And uh, Lactantius developed basically for Constantine a theory of the freedom of conscience. And he said people, if they're going to become Christians, it needs to come from an internal transformation. They have to have a freedom of conscience. And so Constantine, even though he was kind of pro-Christian, you know, he's building churches and advocating for Christianity, he had pagans. Uh, in his cabinet. He had pagan generals, and he made a way for Christians and pagans to live peaceably with one another. Similarly, Charlemagne, Alcuin basically told Charlemagne, he said, you can't force people to become Christians with a sword, because otherwise it's not really a transformation from within. And so actually Charlemagne changed his policy because what Alcuin had told him, and together they developed a whole system of education that really taught Western Europe and for the next thousand years basically built the civilization of Western Europe. And so I actually think the gospel, the lordship of Jesus, results in Christianity not being forced on everyone. A Christian nation is not one where everyone is forced by the state to be Christian. A Christian nation is one where the church is strong. And because the church is strong, the laws are just and informed by the wisdom, mercy, and justice of God's law. And so that leads to our final point. So what we've seen here is, is complex political theology. That on the one hand, we have warnings about God's people trusting in unbelieving political powers that leads to idolatry or syncretism that ultimately ruins God's people. But also we see that the gospel is a political message that Jesus is a king of kings and lord of lords. And the Bible promises his political victory over the kings of the earth. He has done it many times in the past and will continue to do it until the end of the age. But that leads to our final point. It's a practical path forward. Practical path forward. And my practical path for us is to major on building the institution of the church. If you desire cultural change, major on the building of the institution of the church. Uh, 
If you want to see cultural change, be involved in politics, but don't look primarily to the political machine of the state to transform a society. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the issues around Christian nationalists is, is that Christian nationalists are arguing that a nation needs to have a cultural identity that holds a nation together. And they're raising the question, what is the cultural identity that, that holds America together? And it's true. America does need something that ties the diverse people of America together and say, this is who we are as Americans. And, of course, once you try to start trying to define what that culture is, you get into some thorny issues. And you have to ask the question, is the culture that I'm painting a picture of, is it really Christian? You know, sometimes it's a vague Judeo-Christian, European, Western culture. And you have to say, is that really what the church looks like right now? I mean, the church is not a European, Western culture. The church, the vast majority of the Christians in the world are African, South American, and Asian. And uh, how can you paint a picture of a Christian culture without using the picture of the church, which is the culture and civilization that Jesus has built. And in fact, you notice in this passage in verse 15, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And so who is the one who can really bind together the diverse people groups described in this verse? We have to accept it's not America. It is Jesus Christ. And there is no one who's attracted more diverse ethnic community than the person of Jesus Christ right now. He has people from every ethnic background that love him and would die for him. And so to major on the institution of the church means to recognize the limits of political power to bring the kingdom of God. A Christian politician or political activist, I think of them kind of like a Christian doctor. So, you know, you think of as someone's a Christian doctor, and they would say, Christian doctors help people tremendously. I mean, some of you, you might say, I had an ailment, and the doctor, it saved me from so much pain. I'm so grateful for them, to them. But a Christian doctor is basically going to say, listen, I can operate on you. I can, I can get your arm working well. I can, you know, help you with this virus. But I can't fix your life. You need the Lord. That's what you need. So it's a limit to what I can do for you. And that's what a Christian politician has to recognize as well, is say, listen, we want just laws that reflect God's word, and we want to put them in. That's going to bring health and flourishing to the people. But if we want a new society as a politician or a political activist, I can't give it to you. The only way that new society comes is through Christ speaking through his church. This is where cultural change, Jesus has placed his power. And so, friends, we are a part... Uh, of a nation. It is the holy nation of disciples from every tribe and tongue and culture and ethnic group who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. That nation is the chosen race. And if we want to see our nation to be Christian, every aspect of culture transformed to Christ as the Bible envisions it, we must not be tempted by the power of the beast. Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings, is present in his church. So I think Christian nationalists are right about the political implications of the gospel, but, they, but we must be uh, deeply circumspect that we are not becoming, uh, becoming like the beast as we try to fight the beast. Instead of defending some vague Judeo-Christian, European, Western culture, we should defend the simple culture given to the church by our Lord. It is basically made up of four things. A book, 
water for baptism, bread, and wine. That simple culture can welcome people from every ethnic background and not leave them the same, but puts us all in obedience to the supreme lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, praise you, our God, uh, for how profound your word is. And uh, Lord, we need your help to um, uh, apply your word in, into our culture and society. And Lord, we take great hope with the tremendous words of this text that the Lamb has conquered the beast that he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And we pray for our city. We pray for our county, our state, and our nation that the kings and rulers and leaders and political leaders and the citizens would all recognize the lordship of Christ. And would you make our culture more and more like the city of God, the picture that we get in the future from Revelation. And so we pray that you would do this in every land, and may your church be strong, may your church uh, preach your word, and may many come to your house to worship you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.